Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Pharisees loved to be seen. They made long prayers with many words for all to see and hear and admire them. They dressed to be seen and even ate together in such a way as to be seen by everybody and admired. Increasingly, though, the crowds were not seeing them. They were following Jesus. The reason the people followed Jesus is because they trusted him. They listened to him. He taught with authority. They regarded him as a prophet, and many were already convinced that he was the Christ who was to come, the promised king of Israel. They were convinced of this, however, not, of course, because Jesus demonstrated political power or because he talked about his goal to alter or improve the political conditions of the day. He didn't. The authority he was after was the authority he was already demonstrating. He was making his way to bear his own cross, even as he had already told those who followed him and adored him to bear those, to bear theirs. He came to teach. He taught a gospel of peace between the holy God and sinful humanity. He taught not of worldly peace, but peace brought about by the forgiveness of sins. He claimed the authority to forgive sins here on earth. He taught with authority. He claimed spiritual, not political, authority. The Pharisees knew he had no plans to disrupt or gain the power of Caesar. He didn't even have plans to disrupt and gain their power. The beginning of the very next chapter, he warns all those listening right now to do what the Pharisees and scribes tell them to do, for they sit in Moses' seat. Jesus doesn't disrupt anything. Jesus posed no threat to the civil authorities at all. He wasn't a politician. His preaching did not do anything to gain a following of politically-minded freedom fighters. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. But his kingdom did not rely on the power of the sword. It relied on the power of the spirit. He preached the gospel. He taught his disciples to live lives of love, humility, self-sacrifice, and compassion. There wasn't a hint of rebellion against the civil authorities in anything he taught. And the Pharisees knew it. They knew that the government of Caesar had nothing to concern itself with regarding Jesus. As a matter of fact, whatever power and influence over the people that the Pharisees themselves enjoyed did in fact depend on Caesar recognizing the danger of the people to rebel being led to rebellion by the Pharisees. That's where the Pharisees got their clout. The people were anxious and fearful of Roman occupation, and the Pharisees played on this and made use of this political reality. They were jealous of Jesus because Jesus didn't need to do this. He had influence on the people that didn't depend at all on exciting their political worries called their minds away from earthly righteousness, just as it called their minds away from political solutions to the troubles of life. He preached the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace by which they set their minds on their citizenship in heaven. 
So it was out of rank and obvious jealousy that the Pharisees tried to get Jesus in trouble. And they were clever. Yes, those who loved him were called away from earthly matters of political power and heavenly, uh, to heavenly matters of eternal salvation, just like we are. But like us, they were not totally unmindful of matters on earth. They still had their strong opinions on how things ought to be, just like we have strong opinions on what solutions ought to be implemented today. And the Pharisees knew this. Their approach was twofold. First, they sought to flatter Jesus. This, they figured, would disarm him and also show his adoring devotees that they also shared their affection for this man. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. That is, you don't care about their opinion of you, for you do not regard the person or the face of man. They were not being honest, of course. They cared desperately about what people thought of them. So they figured Jesus did too. This is how people generally ensnare others. They know that their deep desires that they hide are in all likelihood also deep desires in the hearts of others. They thought their trap was laid quite well. Jesus couldn't admit what they wouldn't admit. He had to accept the compliment since he surely cared as much as they did about his personal popularity with the people. And this is what led to the trap. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a clever trap. If he had said, yes, it is lawful, he would lose the support of the people who believed that it was unlawful to pledge allegiance to a heathen ruler. Was it necessary to pay taxes? I suppose. Everyone did. After all, it's not as if anyone had a choice. If you don't pay your taxes, the government is going to get you. As they say, there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. And one way or another, the government will see to both. But the Pharisees didn't ask, is it necessary or even advisable? Or what do you do? Because this is what we do, even though we don't like it. No, they asked him as though asking for the beginning of a lofty discussion, is it lawful? What is your opinion on the matter? Because we don't judge each other based on what we do. We all pay taxes. But we judge each other based on our opinions. And they chose their words carefully. Because if Jesus had said that it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he'd be saying that Caesar had the right to demand the allegiance of God's people. How could Jesus teach allegiance to a heathen god? That's what Caesar claimed to be, a heathen god. On the other hand, though, if Jesus responded by saying that it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, this is why they brought the Herodians with him. He would be putting his life into jeopardy. Herod called himself the king of the Jews, but his authority was nothing other than the authority of Caesar. And this was a threat, the fact that they were brought along, who were no friends to the Pharisees, but they were brought along precisely to get Jesus into trouble. 
He could be arrested and put to death properly and legally as an insurrectionist. So they had Jesus in a trap. Whatever way he responded, he'd lose. He'd either lose the support of the people who despised Roman rule over them, or he would find himself at the end of a sword, or at the, the end of a rope, or nailed to a cross for no good purpose. But Jesus turned the trap against them and showed their hypocrisy in the process. He asked to see the tax money. They showed him a denarius. Jesus asked them whose image and inscription were on it. And they said Caesar's. They tried to trap Jesus, but they trapped themselves. What, after all, were they doing with the denarius? How could they use Caesar's coin with Caesar's image and inscription without giving homage and honor to Caesar? They couldn't. It was an unlawful thing to carry around such a graven image. Certainly more unlawful to carry it around than to give it away to some tyrant who's demanding it. Paying taxes is one thing, but carrying around in your pocket or purse is something precious. The image and inscription of one demanding homage over God, well, that's another. Consider what God warned through the prophet Moses to prepare the children of Israel for entrance into the promised land. Deuteronomy 7, you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. Lest you be snared by it. And here they try to ensnare Jesus when their hearts have already been ensnared. When Jesus responded as he did, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was as much as saying that it would be better to give it to him who demands it than to keep it, as though it were something worth holding on to. This is not wisdom we're talking about. It's something that has more worldly power by the looks of it, but something that can do nothing for you in the end. Jesus caught them in the very snare that God had warned them about. Jesus taught submission to heathen authorities. It's a blessing if our rulers are Christian, but it is not necessary for us in order to give them what God tells us to give them. Caesar was a heathen. He was hostile to the truth. He was hostile to Christianity. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate who didn't know what truth was. He received all his authority from Caesar. St. Paul was also killed by Caesar, just as our Lord was. And yet even St. Paul appealed mightily to his rights as a Roman citizen, not to keep his coins. No, he appealed to his right as a citizen in order to preach the kingdom of God by which citizens of heaven were born again here on earth and ruled by the grace of God. It was for the sake of God's kingdom, not for maintaining some connection and clout in this kingdom of earth that Paul appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. And of course, in the end, he was also murdered. It was no surprise 
godless, heathen, anti-Christian tyrants have been persecuting Christians for 2,000 years. For these 2,000 years, Jesus Christ, however, has been teaching his Christians to submit to them, to the authority of the government, even as we defend every advantage we can to promote the preaching of the gospel. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Honor the authority of the state. It is wrong to accept the state's protection while refusing to acknowledge their authority. Some forms of government are obviously better than others, and conversations have been had among Christians since the beginning about which one might be best. But there's one thing that everybody can agree on, and that is what is the worst form of government? And that is anarchy. Everyone does what he wants, The strong exert power over the weak. They bully them who have no recourse for justice. This, more than just the form of government, was what was so wicked about communism and everything else. That those with power seize the vacuum of authority after promising a paradise, after destroying the structure of the state. It's anarchy. That was... Those were some of the original oppositions to communism because they promised that there would be no need for government. Listen to what St. Paul writes, however, in Romans chapter 13, lest we be tempted to think that we'd be better off with no government at all. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We give the government its due because God tells us to. The only authority the government has is the authority given to them by God. That's what Jesus told Pontius Pilate. When Pilate told Jesus that he had power to release him and power to put him to death, And Jesus said, you'd have no power over me had it not been given to you from above. The government doesn't get its authority from the people. It gets its authority from God. God gives the civil government the power it needs to keep the peace, to protect us from those who would do us harm, to exercise the the power of the sword against those who would place themselves above the law in order to exploit the weak and helpless. The government doesn't get its authority from us. 
This form of government or that form of government might give a louder voice to what the people think. Just like the Pharisees cared what the people thought, right? But if it is legitimate authority, we must acknowledge that it comes from God. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But don't give him any more than that. Don't give to Caesar what belongs to God alone. We're so disappointed to hear that we should render to Caesar what is Caesar's, that we forget how comforting and encouraging and emboldening it is for Jesus to say to give to God what is God's. When the civil authorities claim the authority that God does not give it, they transgress a line and must be resisted and opposed. Not because they got their authority from you, but because they got their authority from God. And you know God, and you belong to God. The government may lay claim to our property. It may require us to pay taxes. Even when it's spending those taxes on terrible things, it may require us to obey its laws, even when they're stupid. But it may not require us to do anything contrary to God's word, and it may not interfere with the preaching of the gospel. If the government wants to appeal to public safety, they have the duty to make their case and persuade us not to gather, but they have no right to tell us how or when we can gather to hear God's word and to receive his sacrament and in what manner or frequency. The government, God's servant for our good, may not lay claim to the affection and devotion that we owe to God alone, and they may not separate us by any threat or claim to authority from that which Jesus has instituted in our midst for our good. There's a lot of confusion in both the church and the state about who has what power. The state plays God as politicians promise to do what only God can do. The state declares wars, which is certainly its jurisdiction. We might even say it would be better if they actually declared wars rather than just got in skirmishes, right? But think of what they're declaring war on. They declare war on poverty, war on drugs, terror, or some disease. They even declare war on the hidden hatred of human hearts against those whom they imagine are marginalized and oppressed. The state declares its intent, as though it can, to solve problems that only God can solve. And so the government seeks and gets more and more and more power to right every wrong that we might be worried about and oppressed by. Not content with doing what it can do, the government, the state, often seeks to change the unchangeable. But the poor we will have with us always. The state promises what it cannot deliver, what in the end is a very undesirable hope to attain. It promises heaven and delivers hell. This is what happened under communism that finally delivered not the the promise of paradise on earth, but utter destruction, the murder of millions, 
It was the deceit that if we give to Caesar what belongs to God, then Caesar will become able to do what only God can do. But the power of the sword can't do what only God can do. It cannot change the human heart. It cannot lead anyone to repentance and faith. It cannot forgive a single sin. It can't open heaven to anyone. And that's the only power of Caesar. He has power of the sword. He can give a form of justice, something that we might crave and desire because we need it on earth to some degree. He can give the kind of justice that one sinful man can give to another, but he, he cannot rise above his nature. Whatever he seeks and whatever he offers will be stained and corrupted by the same selfishness, envy, greed, and self-serving violence that's in the hearts of those the government rules. And that's why it is and will be until the end of time this way that the government is totally ineffectual in solving the deepest problems. They throw money at problems because money spells power. And we resent having to give it up. But this is not the power we trust in. It is so sad, therefore, that the church grasps for our political influence as if that's what the world needs from us. We need to right the wrongs because we have a, a clearer understanding of what's wrong with the world. But the church does not need any political power to do what God gave us to do. The church needs God's word. The church has Christ. And that's what the world needs. That's what we need. It's only through the gospel of Christ that true justice is ever given to anyone. The first and greatest act of worship is therefore the pure proclamation of Christ's holy word. If we are to proclaim that we do not trust in money, well then give it to him who demands it. We pay our taxes. Even more so if we are to proclaim to the world and bear witness to our own hearts that we trust in him alone who is able to save us, who has power to forgive us and give us eternal salvation, then we pay our dues to Caesar and then pay our dues to God. We throw our money at him, but we commend all our riches, times, and talents to him who still causes his kingdom to be preached for us. For giving to God what is God's is preaching the gospel in its truth and purity. It is seeking out this gospel, taking it to heart, teaching it to our little ones, believing it. For God is glorified not by Caesar shaking his fist or rattling his saber or promising more bread and entertainment to those who think that this will solve a single problem. No, God is glorified by the church of Jesus Christ remaining faithful to her Lord's great commission to preach the gospel to all nations. The state will still provide a limited form of worldly peace. And we are to pursue it, not just by obeisance to whatever the government says, but even by thoughtful participation in the government to whatever degree we're allowed in it. And we are blessed in this nation. If we can walk down the streets in safety, if we can be secure in our own homes, 
If we can be able to keep and use what we have worked hard for, if we can practice our faith that saves us, then we should thank God for the peace that he provides even through the rulers that we might not have voted for. But the state provides only a temporary peace. It will always only give imperfect justice. The peace that comes from God is the peace of sins forgiven. It is the peace of being reconciled to God by means of his obedient son. And he gives to us a justice not by simply working it in us or punishing others, no, but by bearing the punishment we have deserved, God reckons or imputes, credits to us the righteousness that is flawless, the justice that is perfect. And even now, as he pleads before our Heavenly Father, interceding for those who bear his image on their hearts, Jesus paid his taxes to Caesar, but to God he paid his life as a sacrifice for all sinners. And so he established peace on earth, and that peace prevails wherever sinners are led to trust in him and in his gospel. That is why we cherish the gospel above all allegiance to any authority. We give to the state what the state can rightfully claim from us. Our faith is in God. We don't trust in any human government to provide or secure what we really need in life. We trust him who died for us, who rose for us, who as our king of grace, as we will soon be singing, has imprinted his image upon our hearts. He is our true king, our king of peace, our king of righteousness, our savior. His kingdom shall have no end. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ into eternal life. Amen. Thank you.